This is a presentation of the Pitch Podcast Network. Hello, 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 and welcome to the Streetwise Podcast, an extension of the Pitch in Kansas City. I am your host, Brock Wilbur, also the editor-in-chief at The Pitch. That is why I'm here. How is everybody doing out there? I hope you are having a wonderful, wonderful Friday. Um, I am looking forward to tomorrow, <laughs> because tomorrow morning at 11 a.m., I get to go to a critic screening of Sonic the Hedgehog 2, which... I am exceedingly excited for for several reasons. First, um, the critic screenings, we normally have those 7 p.m. on a Tuesday or Wednesday night. Getting theaters has been difficult as of late, so they've just started booking things at entirely random times. I'm going to be seeing The Northman on Monday morning at 10 a.m. in a theater up in North Casey. So, like, Sonic on a Saturday morning, it might as well be cartoons. Like, it's it's great. But also... Sonic the Hedgehog, the first movie, I would die for. It is a wonderful, wonderful movie. I love it so annoyingly much. Uh, I, I cannot believe how much it has become like a a sick day background movie for me to be like, let's throw that on. Like it, that and, and Princess Bride and Donnie Darko, we can, we can do the whole rotation. The other part of it is that my experience seeing Sonic the Hedgehog, the first film, in theaters was incredibly complicated. So it was Valentine's Day uh, 2020. Uh, my friend Reb uh, was still in town. Uh, she has since moved. Uh, her boyfriend came to visit from San Francisco. Uh, and so the two of them, and me and my wife, went to see Sonic the Hedgehog for a romantic couple's evening on Valentine's Day. Um, and the the first part of it that was great was that at the AMC, um, they were already starting to face the sort of like uh, hiring issues that we continue to face everywhere, labor, et cetera, et cetera. We're going to get into that more later. Um, but they had a bartender there uh, that night. It was his first day ever bartending. Um, and he wasn't fully sure what to do with anything. So uh, instead of giving us the sort of meager pours uh, that an AMC normally does uh, for the drinks, uh, he poured what I, I think would probably wind up being four rounds of wine into a like large beer cup for my wife. So she got to go in with like, a, she did not need to come back out for a second round. Like she was going to be done either way there. Uh, and then uh, as the credits were rolling and we were waiting for the post credit scene that we knew some sort of teaser would be there. Uh, I turned my phone on and saw that uh, the keyboard player from my favorite band had died. Um, and so that is forever linked <laughs> to Sonic the Hedgehog. Uh, so I have this weird darkness over this thing that I love. Um, and so I'm really kind of worried about tomorrow where <laughs> I'm like, oh, if I go, will somebody else I love die? Like, is there, is, is Sonic the Hedgehog as a feature film 
death note, but for me. Like, uh, <laughs> am I just writing somebody's name down every time I see Tails? Uh, so, I don't know. I'm very excited for it, unless something goes terribly wrong, which is the tagline for most things that I do. Uh, anyway, we have a, a great episode for you today. Uh, we are talking to a psychologist. We are going to Nick's Music Town. Uh, but first and foremost, we have a reading of Union Stations by Liz Cook, brought to us by our friend Jason from Stolen Dress Entertainment. Jason, take it away. Union Stations, Collective Action and Capitalism's Reaction in Hospitality, by Liz Cook. It wasn't a worker shortage. It was a wage shortage. Or maybe it was a work ethic shortage. People didn't want to work anymore. Or people didn't want to work for crummy employers anymore. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. The explanations differed, depending on who you talked to. But the problem remained the same. Nearly every bar or restaurant in the town was short-staffed. The staffing crunch in the hospitality industry isn't new. We started covering it almost five years ago. But the pandemic rubbed fresh salt on an old wound. Many workers who were laid off during the first shutdown orders in March 2020 haven't returned to the industry. Those who weren't laid off grew increasingly frustrated with poor working conditions and combative customers, and many left the industry voluntarily. Two years into the pandemic, the problem seems to only be getting worse. According to the Bureau of Labor Statistics Job Openings and Labor Turnover Survey, nearly one million leisure and hospitality workers quit their jobs in November 2021, the highest number recorded in the history of the series. As businesses compete to attract a shrinking pool of workers, wages are starting to tick up. Benefits such as health insurance and 401ks remain scarce in the hospitality industry, but they're becoming more common. The balance of power is shifting. This month, we're digging into how that shift might reshape the local hospitality industry, and how it already has. Unions are gaining ground, with a long way to go. The labor shortage is employer-created and has been a long time coming, says Chris Fielder, a barista at the Plaza Starbucks. Fielder is a member of the organizing committee at the Plaza Store, one of two Metro Starbucks that filed for union elections last month. The other is in Overland Park, at 75th and I-35. If successful, Fielder and his co-workers would be represented by Workers United, an affiliate of the Service Employees International Union. Fielder says unsafe working conditions, unchecked sexual harassment from customers, and wages that have barely moved for some of the coffee shop's longest tenured employees all contributed to his decision to join the effort. But he also mentions a leaky fridge that dribbled water onto the floor for months. It was only fixed, Fielder says, when a co-worker slipped and got a concussion. One of the material changes we need is working materials. Hannah McCown, a shift supervisor at the Overland Park Starbucks at 75th Street and I-35, says her store began organizing independent of the plaza location, though they coordinated the timing of their public announcements. McCown cites weak pandemic safety policies, spontaneous cuts to store hours, and dangerous employee parking among the issues at her store. Although our issues are different, we are asking for the same thing, which is for our voices to be heard, says McCann. They're joining a labor movement that's been growing across the country. At the time of this writing, 78 Starbucks locations in 23 states have filed for union elections, with new stores announced almost daily. Pandemic-related challenges have undoubtedly contributed to that movement, but so has the changing makeup of the workforce. I definitely think it's a lot of young people that are being hired into the company, says Adao Cochran, a barista at the Plaza Starbucks. Cochran is only 18, but he helped lead the push to unionize at his store. He tells me at least three of his co-workers are around the same age. I think that a lot of young people are now becoming a lot more politically conscious. When the pitch spoke to Starbucks employees at the beginning of February, they were still waiting for a response from Starbucks corporate. 
In mid-February, they got one. Instead of responding directly to employee petitions, the company launched an anti-union website titled We Are One Starbucks, urging employees to vote down the union efforts in their stores. We don't believe having a union will meaningfully change or solve the problems you've identified in your stores, the website reads. We know we aren't perfect, but we believe our challenges are best addressed by working together. If only there was some way for employees to work together to address workplace challenges. That befuddled corporate response was surprising to tenured members of the local labor movement. Businesses are out of practice negotiating with workers. U.S. union participation has been on a decades-long decline, one that accelerated precipitously in the 1970s and 1980s. The reasons for that decline are complex, but include the persistent effects of state right-to-work laws and a series of National Labor Relations Board rulings during the Nixon and Reagan administrations that dismantled union obligations. Organized labor has been under attack for 35 years, says Pat Duke Dujakovic, president of the Greater Kansas City AFL-CIO. The AFL-CIO is the nation's largest federation of unions, which means Dujakovic represents more than just hospitality workers. His members range from custodians to firefighters to Patrick Mahomes. But the labor landscape is shifting locally, and Dujakovic says he's clocked a resurgence of interest in unions among the hospitality industry in particular. That could be good for workers and businesses. The relationship doesn't have to be adversarial. Although Starbucks has stymied organizers thus far, Dujakovic thinks unions might be able to appeal to smaller, independent restaurant and bar owners by offering them assistance with training, staffing, and access to higher-quality health care plans for their employees. If we can show value to these small businesses like that, that they can join a union, pay about what they're paying right now, and have access to our health care, then we're going to have a much easier job organizing, Dujakovic says. This could be a great turning point for organized labor, but we've got to move quick before the moment ends. Workers don't seem to be wasting any time. On January 30th, Cauldron Collective hosted an informational meeting at the Stray Cat Film Center for non-managerial industry workers to share grievances and gather information about how to unionize their workplaces. Although the pitch was barred from attending, Collective member Olive Cook says there were attendees from nearly every corner of the hospitality industry, from fast casual to fine dining to school cafeterias. We're starting to realize as workers how important our work is, Cook says. Worker-owned collectives are promising a new labor model. Cook and her co-workers aren't the most obvious hosts for a labor organizing event. A union wouldn't make much sense for their own restaurant, which is structured as a worker-owned collective. The collective's three employees, Cook, Kim Conyers, and Sylvia Mehta, all own an equal share of the business and have equal say in its operations. We wrote about the collective and their business model back in January, but we called them back up after the January 30th union meeting to talk about where they think the broader industry is heading. None of the trio seemed surprised by the staffing issues facing local restaurants. Workers have been frustrated with the conditions in the industry for a while, they say, and the pandemic only exacerbated things. It's less of a worker shortage and more of a good employer shortage, Meta says. Hosting the union meeting to help organize workers was step one. Fostering an environment conducive to more worker-owned cooperatives is step two. A union represents the workers to the boss, but the boss still owns what they produce, Cook explains. Collectivism is the next step forward because it takes out that variable, the ownership variable, and gives everybody ownership over their jobs. Worker-owned collectives aren't new, but they're still relatively uncommon in the hospitality industry. When the collective started putting together their business plan, they found only about 50 cooperatively owned restaurants in the United States. Most were located on the coasts, but there was a surprising cluster of worker-owned restaurants in the Midwest, in particular the Minneapolis-St. Paul Metro. Conyers sees that as a sign of the model's success and local reproducibility. Once the model starts in a place, the people in that direct area start talking and say, oh my god, this is totally working, and it kind of takes off from there. The collective model can pose challenges to restaurants, too, especially if the company wants to grow. 
Selling stock in a company can be complicated when only workers are allowed to have a say in that company's decisions. Shareholders might not have any influence on the restaurant's operations or payout policy. And many commercial banks aren't prepared to process loan applications with multiple worker owners. But alternative financial services have been stepping in to fill that gap. The trio has consulted Altcap, a community development financial institution, CDFI, that specializes in microloans to underserved communities. They also recently launched a GoFundMe to help them finance the purchase of a food truck. They may not be the only collective in KC for long. In December, Kyle Gardner and Howard Hanna announced plans to open two cooperatively owned and operated restaurants, Small Axe, a modern diner, and Afi, a globe-trotting wine bar, under an ownership group called the Manaya Collective. The idea for the Manaya Collective came out of the pair's experience during the pandemic, when they helped close down the Rieger and helped transform the restaurant into a community kitchen, serving pay-as-you-can meals to people in need. Kind of overnight, that collective model just happened, Gardner says. Everyone started getting paid the same wage. Their daily tasks were dependent on what we needed to get done that day. We didn't have clear divisions between front of house and back of house. We didn't have people saying, no, I can't do that, or that's not my job. Everyone just kind of found out what their skill sets were and made it work. The details of how the Manaya Collective will operate aren't yet finalized. They can't be, Gardner says, until the opening teams have been hired. He wants his employees to have a say in every aspect of the restaurant's operations, from how to share profits to what kind of soap to use in the bathrooms. But he does say each employee, whether they're part-time or full-time, will get an equal say in the company decisions. One vote per employee, no votes for non-employee investors. Gardner mentions Cauldron Collective in their recent union meeting as positive developments in the industry's labor movement. The restaurant industry has depended on exploitative labor practices since its inception. The pandemic only exacerbated some of those issues, but it also served as a long overdue wake-up call for workers, restaurateurs, and landlords alike. It's going to be hard to go back to sleep. I'm optimistic, actually, Gardner says. I think that we're moving toward a more progressive dining scene in the city. Business owners are innovating and experimenting. Your meal is ready. Please take it away. The Minnie Mouse voice emerged from the head of a four-shelf food delivery robot named Totoro, which had wheeled itself to my table in Sayachi Sushi in Brookside. I removed a bowl of agadashi tofu from its ribcage and hit a button that let the robot know I had what I needed. It wheeled away silently. A few seconds later, a human server appeared. Did everything come out okay? Sayachi isn't the only business to experiment with putting robots on the payroll. Magic Noodle in Overland Park recently added their own food delivery robot with a cat-like face and sleek plastic pointed ears. They named it Bella. Robot workers tend to make the human ones uneasy. The fear is that automation will gobble up jobs. But right now, the robots only deliver food from the kitchen. They don't take orders or bust plates. Sayaka Falcon, who owns Sayachi with her husband, Chef Carlos Falcon, says Totoro didn't actually eliminate any jobs at a restaurant. The thing is, with staffing, even if we have the bodies, a lot of experienced industry people move on to another career when the pandemic started, says Falcon. It's been hard to find someone with experience. Although the industry has been adding jobs at a breakneck pace, as of January 2022, employment in the leisure and hospitality sector was still down 10% from its February 2020 pre-pandemic level. Many restaurants have had to turn to workers with less experience and training to fill vacancies. Falcon says the robot has allowed Sayachi's servers to spend more time with customers instead of running back and forth from the kitchen to the tables. It also helps keep kids entertained. The servers don't resent their new co-workers. They're so grateful. Still, the hospitality industry seems unlikely to go full cyborg, even in the distant future. Remember all those reports of boorish customers demanding restaurant workers pull down their masks so they could see their faces? U.S. diners don't like impersonal service. We want our hospitality with a human touch. 
To solve the staffing shortage, restaurant and bar owners are likely going to need to experiment with a lot of other innovations too. Fortunately, there's a lot of exploration room between business as usual and burning capitalism to the ground. Restaurateurs may not want to abolish tipping, but they could ease pay discrepancies between front and back of house workers by offering bonuses tied to a performance metric, such as fewer refires for kitchen staff. That small change has the potential to boost line cooks' paychecks while saving owners money. Fewer refires means lower food costs and happier diners. Similarly, owners of existing bars and restaurants are unlikely to fully hand over the business to their employees, but they could institute percentage-based profit sharing or employee stock options to incentivize employees to become invested in the business's success. Some of these changes are already happening. Todd Johnson, owner of Strips Chicken in Olave, says he started offering his employees profit sharing, distributed as a percentage of their wages, and a 401k plan last year. 14 of 15 eligible employees are now participating in the latter. He also offers year-end bonuses based on an employee's tenure, $50 a month for the first year of service, $100 per month for the second. Chris Zembruski, the owner of Chef Kansas City, recently instituted a profit-sharing program as well. Zembruski started Chef Kansas City in his garage years ago and has since grown it into a catering company and weekly meal prep service with three full-time employees. Last October, he began distributing a set percentage of the month's net profits to each of those employees. He declined to tell the pitch the percentage. It's not benevolence, it's business. This business is my livelihood, he says. I wouldn't implement it, profit-sharing, if it didn't make sense. Zimbruski operates out of a ghost kitchen, and he acknowledges that his overhead costs are lower than many other business owners. He understands why profit-sharing hasn't been adopted more widely, especially as the industry recovers from the pandemic. Food costs are rising, labor costs are rising, and a restaurant might operate with a 5% profit margin even in normal times. Cutting into those profits further is a tough sell but Zembruski and others are banking that those decisions will help grow the business long-term. Unwinding a years-long staffing crisis isn't going to happen overnight. Labor organizers are going to have to continue to push feet-dragging employers into the 21st century. Worker-owned collectives are going to have to demonstrate that their models are profitable and reproducible. And business owners are going to have to continue to innovate to compete for talented staff. Hospitality industry workers want what everyone wants. A living wage, yes, but also a chance to grow in an industry that respects their dignity and skill. Bread for the table and roses too. They're not going to settle for a shift drink. Thank you for your service was never enough. And now it's time for Nick's Music Corner. Hello, I'm Nick Spacek, music editor for The Pitch, here with this week's local music recommendation. Lauren's musician Jenna Ray's debut, Workin' Woman, released in 2018, presented her as more than just a singer-songwriter, but a force with which to be reckoned. Not only was it a fully produced country album, it was the debut release on her label, Lost Cowgirl Records. In the intervening years, Ray has performed with her partner, Martin Farrell Jr., as cosmic country duo Jenna and Martin, and as part of the bluegrass quintet, Unfit Wives, who released their debut, Live and Unfit, last fall. Jenna Ray is now back with her second solo outing. Entitled Country Lo-Fi, the album was recorded with acoustic guitar and vocals tracked live, with Farrell adding in one other lead instrument per song, along with found sounds including a fly swatter, BB gun, screen door, and, of course, Ray and Farrell's dog Roy, who has made multiple appearances in Ray's live YouTube videos. It's really a delight to hear these songs, many of which have appeared in those aforementioned YouTube videos in a finished form, this is a very warm and intimate album, but has just enough verve and spark to make for a perfect accompaniment to a sunny Sunday drive. Opening track and first single from Country Lo-Fi, Friend in High Places, might initially seem like an homage to Garth Brooks' omnipresent single, but it's more than that. It's a pay-on to missing friends and trying to push on, and sets the tone perfectly for the nine songs which are to follow. 
Generae's Country Lo-Fi is out this week. You can order it on compact disc or vinyl at thelostcowgirl.com, where it comes with a sticker and a pin, or stream it on the digital service of your choice. Here's Friend in High Places.
Frank has a new book coming out called The Science of Stuck. Um, she's incredible. The book is incredible. And uh, this is sort of the announcement that we're going to start doing a regular column uh, at the pitch uh, with her, uh, offering some mental health Q&As to, to folks from the community reaching out. I think you can hear around the five-minute mark when I'm like, you should be writing for us. Uh, and, and then that stops being... Uh, an interview and more of a, a, a job interview. So here's my interview with Britt Frank. Britt, welcome to the podcast. Would you introduce yourself to our audience? Hi, thanks for having me. I'm Britt Frank, and I'm a psychotherapist and a trauma specialist and author of the new book, The Science of Stuck. Now, what is The Science of Stuck? Well, I think in these last two years, if we didn't like know what it felt like to be stuck before, we all certainly qualify now. So, you know, a lot of people as a therapist, I hear a lot of people say, I'm struggling with motivation. I'm such a procrastinator. What's wrong with me? I'm lazy. And really there are science-based reasons why life isn't really working for a lot of us right now. And it's important to know that you're not lazy or not crazy. And if you know just a little bit about the brain, you can actually like get yourself into motion or at the very least stop living in a shame spiral, which is really important. So why can't I get anything done? Let's start with, with <laughs> tell me what I'm doing wrong. <laughs> um, okay. How much time do we have here? Let's see. <clears throat> oh boy. That was oh. a good dunk right out of the gate here. <laughs> No, I'm a professional ducker. Okay. Well, I don't know your story, but what I can tell you is for whatever reason, your brain does not feel very safe in your world, whether that's good, bad, right, wrong, logic, illogic, irrelevant, your brain doesn't feel safe. And when your brain doesn't feel safe, it shuts you the hell down. And that's what your problem is, but it's not your fault. We can fix it. It's not that you're broken or sick or diseased or disordered or messed up or like a, a sucky human. You know, our brains have a gas pedal and a brake pedal. And if your brake pedal is stuck to the floor, you're not going anywhere, no matter how many affirmations you chant to yourself. I, I really just like be talking to a therapist that's like, <laughs> the rest of that stuff is just hokey. Like, <laughs> you okay? I, yeah, I've, I've, I've tried out enough therapists in my day that, uh, after the first session, I was like, that was a little too yoga granola for, uh, I think, the things I need help with. So, like, this is <laughs> this is already off to the right start. So, what are the benefits to being stuck? Because you spend a lot of time focusing on the positive uh, in this book. <laughs> well, well, I spend a lot of time focusing on what's real. I, I hate dealing in, like, let's just think positive because you're full of crap. Or, like, Toxic let's just positivity think is just a terrible thing. Uh, it's and, so gross. <laughs> It's so gross, but like, it's important to know that there are benefits to being stuck. And I am like recovering hot mess of a human and a recovering drug addict. Like I've smoked meth, like I've done all the things and it's like, there are benefits to even our most insane jacked up behaviors. Now, I'm not saying that they're good. Like, it's not good that I was doing X, Y, and Z, but there were, there are benefits to staying completely stuck in the mud. One being you don't have to risk rejection. You don't have to risk failure. You don't have to like utilize energy. You don't have to risk financial resources. And if we don't own, like, actually I'm getting a lot out of being totally stuck in the mud. If you don't name that, we're not going to change it and no shame. It's not like you have to be feel bad about it, but it's like, Hey, if you do a cost benefit analysis, there are good reasons why you're going nowhere fast. Let's just name them. And then we can start to change things. Uh, Maybe my favorite chapter in the book, or at least uh, my favorite uh, title for a chapter is uh, chapter four, Shadow Intelligence, 
why you need the parts of yourself you hate. I feel like this could have been its own book just with that title. Like I would have had to buy it. Be like, no, that's that's for me and most everyone I know. What is shadow intelligence? That's my favorite chapter. And I would love to write a whole <laughs> book on that. I know I shouldn't have favorites, but <clears throat> so, okay. So the shadow sounds like a super granola hippie woo woo thing, but it's like, okay, think about science shadows. Like if you're looking outside, a shadow is created when something is blocking the light. So when light is blocked, a shadow is created. Psychological shadows are created when our awareness is blocked. In other words, if you're lying to yourself about yourself, that's where you're going to have psychological shadows. And psychological shadows are really the culprit behind most of the crap we deal with as humans. The first and foremost thing is when you stop lying to yourself about yourself and you think your shadow is like conscious, then you can actually start working with them. Like I had to deal with, no, I'm not a good person. There's no such thing as a good person. That's crap. We are people, which means we have the full spectrum of the good, the bad, and the like WTF. And to pretend like we don't leads us into a whole mess of cracky, like cracked out, bad, stupid, unhealthy, suboptimal, call it whatever you want behaviors. So like, let's just take all of the shame and the fear and the woo off of it. Shadow intelligence is just it's like IQ. IQ is your intelligence quotient. EQ is your emotional intelligence. SQ is your shadow intelligence. How aware are you of the darkest parts of your psyche that we all have and that most of us try to run away from? So what is your advice to people on how to be a, an adult and a human being <laughs> and, and functional? Like, yeah, <laughs> I realize you've done several hundred words on that here, but how would you sum it up for a podcast interview? <laughs> How to adult. Okay. So let's start with the fact that we're not doing it. Like I didn't know I was a, not adulting properly. Like I didn't even know I had like a dysfunctional family until I was in my mid twenties. And then it's like, we're not taught. There's no like magical marker that says now you are an adult level achieved, <laughs> you know, like, here you go. Here is your ability to floss and your ability to navigate medical insurance. Like it doesn't happen. So step one, how to adult recognize that you're not doing a very good job of it. No shame. It's just what is like, we all suck at it because no one's taught how to do it. Okay. No biggie. Let's deal with that. Then step two is we have to recognize that no one is coming to save us. Like I'm super, not like a yay positive therapist. I'm like, no one is coming to save you. No rescue is coming. There is no magical fairy that is coming to bestow upon you all the love and hugs and nurture that you should have gotten as a kid. Like it sucks that most of us don't get what we need. And it does like, we don't have to pretend it doesn't, but it's never going to happen. And the faster we get on the train of, of no one is coming to save us, the faster we can actually like be in charge of our lives. And then this is super uplifting, isn't it? Sorry. <laughs> it is. I, I sincerely, I'm just like, I, as soon as I get off this call, I'm going to make an appointment with you. I think you should maybe be my new therapist because I, I need somebody who can uh, give darkness back to me. <laughs> it's so important though, because we're in this toxic, positive, rah, rah, I can do all the things, Insta expert, look at my boss, babe, seven figure, blah, blah, blah on Instagram. And it's like, if we don't start owning our darkness, we're never going to get to wholeness. You cannot be a whole person. Wholeness is light and dark, up and down, good and bad. And you cannot be whole without owning your darkness. So like, let's just take all the shame and stigma and weirdness off of it and just name it. Those weird, really messed up thoughts that I know you think, I think them too. We all think them, you know, so let's just deal with it so we can all get moving. 
Well, I, I cannot wait to read your follow-up book, Owning the Darkness. Um, <laughs> so uh, you you work with people in this city. Um, if there's one thing that you could say to uh, to Kansas City uh, that that on the whole you're like, everyone here seems to be facing it. Everyone I talk to, like, what's a piece of advice for the city as a whole? <laughs> I love Kansas City. Like, this is really the best. I'm from New York originally, and I'm so happy to be in Kansas City. And I, it's just really the best. So yay. I heart KC. So, you know, <laughs> what I'm noticing as a whole is we're all trying to pretend like we're okay and we're not, and it's okay. So let's just like all be a mess together so we can all get better together. You know, most of the, the messes that we see of humanity don't come from people that own their awesome, you know, like people that are pretending to be okay actually cause more harm than the ones who are like, actually, I'm a mess. My kids are a mess. My family is a mess. I've been a homeschool teacher for two years. We're in the middle of a global pandemic. The world is burning to the ground. So like, let's not put a smile on that and bring a casserole over for it. Let's just name it so we can deal with it. Like, let's just be messy together, Kansas City. It's okay. Like, I see you. It's all good. The science is stuck. Where can people find it? Science of Stuck um, locally is at Rainy Day Books and at Barnes and Noble, and you can buy it wherever books are sold. We're just not going to say the the A word. You can say it. It's on Amazon. No, we don't have to. No, no, no. We're, Amazon. Yeah, Rainy Day Books it is. <laughs> <laughs> Shop local. Uh, where can people follow your continuing work? Social media, website, things like that? Yeah, I'm big on Instagram. I spend way too much time doom scrolling, but that's where I am. So you can find me um, on Instagram at Britt Frank, B-R-I-T-T-F-R-A-N-K, or my website, scienceofstuck.com. Fantastic. Thank you for your time today. And we will be talking to you again very soon, I think. <laughs> Thanks for having me. <laughs> all right. Ladies and gents, that was the Streetwise podcast. I hope you are all taken care of there. Please check out the pitchkc.com and all the great work we are doing there each and every day of the week. Take care of each other, be kind, pitch in and we'll make it through. This was a production of the Pitch Podcast Network. The Pitch is Kansas City's independent source for news and culture. Check out thepitchkc.com to see more podcasts from us, including information for how to subscribe to The Pitch or become a sustaining member. Story ideas or feedback? Write to tips at thepitchkc.com. Pitch in and we'll make it through.